ไปครับThrough the unassuming storefront threshold, and into the dust-splattered Boston Brahmin Watch office. Finally, we hear the pins click and the door swings wide. We step inside into a dimly lit space. Fossilized mud clings to tufts of. Polypropylene loop pile carpet, deposited by Brahmin watchers stepping in out of the rain. Anachronistic budget blinds slice the fading sunlight. In the middle of the capacious space, an armada of desks have been scuttled together, although empty now. They give off an air of hushed secrecy. 
as if watchers were huddled together just before our arrival, discussing some shivering revelation in funeral whispers, and had hurriedly left. Perhaps something or someone had spooked them and sent them in search of a nerve-dampening cigarette. Double-sided documents with concentric coffee rings seem to drift across the desktops, but there's no discernible breeze. In the middle of the desk armada, a baby blue cooler bobs in the surf. You throw open its lid and fetch a lone star from the melted sludge in its innards. I pull a thrifted stool that's missing its seat from beneath one of the desks and lean against it. What do you think? Everything you imagined and more? You say. There's a certain divorced dad, je ne sais quoi. <laughs> Cork boards have been tacked, nailed, hung, and duct taped to almost every surface. It almost feels like we're inside an inverted tank. The bulletin board armor plating manufactured to keep us and our psycho takes inside. One hundred para-power maps burn into your retinas from every angle, like one hundred discrete sigils, each one a physical representation of formal and informal familial and secret societal power networks that once ran American capitalism from the city on a hill. I dissect a manila envelope and materialize an ID with the words Boston Brahmin Watch Citizen Detective embossed on it. Lame as fuck, I know, but it's the best we can do here. I hand it and a black sharpie to you for you to sign your name. You scribble your John Hancock, sus Brahmin alert, and hand it back to me. I then take the ID and feed it into the flinty mouth of our U-line 12-inch industrial laminator, flicking the green and orange switches. The little box purrs and transmutes your brand new Boston Brahmin watch ID, now glistening and unstainable. I also give you a ball cap and a 12-pack of miniature legal pads for parapower mapping purposes. Who knows, maybe we can do a real-world merch drop at some point. Now well and truly swagged out, I smile and say, Well, that's about all there is to it. You've been initiated into the clandestine civilian corps of the Boston Brahmin Watch. Let's get to work. If you're hearing this, you've been given a glimpse of the kinds of Pulp Fiction, Elroy-esque radio dramas and other auditory perks that the subscribers of the Boston Brahmin Watch premium feed get to enjoy on the reg. We've made a good run of it, but all good runs come to an end. And after five behemoths of podcast episodes... 
It's finally time that I publish that Patreon and the dreaded paywall. I wish I didn't have to, but I've expended so much time and energy researching for this show, producing the episodes, and um, losing sleep over the many fucked up things that I've learned over the course of this process that it would be untenable if I didn't humbly ask for you to contribute what you can to supporting this show, if it's something that you enjoy and find value in. And I'm honestly excited to be able to finally say, please, go to Patreon, look up Para Power Mapping, and subscribe. While you work on that, I'll play you out free of charge, with half of this first premium feed episode. If you can't afford to subscribe at this time, don't worry, because there are going to be plenty more Parapower Maps released on the free feed, hopefully for many more years to come. Thankful for your support, and grateful for all the time we've spent together. Now back to your regular programming. Now to christen the Boston Brahmin Watch premium feed, we're going to do something a little different today. At the same time, this miniature episode will dovetail nicely with episodes 3 and 4, Human Alchemy, and more Maypole Mythos, Morton, and Puritan Nepo Babies, in which we discussed the saga of Thomas Morton, Nathaniel Hawthorne's reimagining of Morton's Maypole Revel, in the Maypole at Mary Mount, Vickery's essay, The Golden Bough at Mary Mount, which explicates some of the underlying mythic imagery of both Hawthorne's story and the calendrical ritual itself, Midsomar connotations, agrarian cults like the Eleusinian Mysteries and the Cult of Cybele, and ritual sacrifice and castration. This is also the fulfillment of a previous para-power mapping promise. You might remember that I once said we'd read this short, short story by the French symbolist Marcel Schwab. Well, today is the follow-through, but we're not going to read just one Schwab short story. We're actually going to read a few. This is because when I recently flipped through his collection, the King in the Golden Mask, I discovered that there are two Schwab stories that allude to the Galli, the eunuch priests of the cult of Cybele. But before we bushwhack our way into the thorny jungle of these Schwab translations, let's first discuss the man himself. He's an interesting figure, and an influence on a few of my favorite authors, Bolaño and Borges in particular. There are also some synchronicities and connections to writers we've previously handled to point out. Unfortunately, as I've clacked away and composed this series, I've discovered that Schwab has some very sus connections, the implications of which are dark. As we've observed time and again, Schwab was born into a bourgeois literary family, and his career as a writer was essentially guaranteed through his familial connections. 
mirroring the dynamic that we've seen with all these Puritan Nepo babies as we've been discussing. Now, make no mistake, just as with Thomas Pynchon, I still really enjoy Marcel Schwab's writing, but I have to point the Nepo baby reality out, because it seems instructive to our larger investigations. As we attempt to model assorted whirligigs and cogs in the cultural capitalist machine. Full disclosure, friend, I don't speak French, so prepare yourself for a shit ton of mispronunciations of various French place names and words. I apologize. I'm going to do the best that I can. Marcel Schwab was born in Cheville, France a few years following the close of the Civil War in the United States. His father was friends with Théophile Gautier and Théodore de Bonville, and his mother, Mathilde Cahun, came from intelligentsia stock in Alsace. Marcel's brother Maurice would inherit and publish a daily newspaper in Nantes called Le Fond de la Loi from their father, Later on, their niece would become a well-known surrealist photographer and sculptor in the French surrealist scene of the Roaring Twenties. So yes, they were one of those families. And now, for a synchronicity between Schwab and Thomas Pynchon, one of the foci of episode 5, I'm unsure whether it was prior to his birth or when he was young, but his father served as the French Minister of Foreign Affairs in Egypt for ten years. In fact, it appears that the Schwabs would have been in Egypt only a couple decades preceding the Fashoda incident, which Pynchon used as the backdrop of the espionage and diplomatic happenings in his short story Under the Rose. Speaking of which, I forgot to mention the Fashoda incident in episode 5, but did include it in a thread on Twitter if you want to give it a look-see. Speaking of which, make sure to give Parapower Mapping a follow on Twitter if you haven't before. But here's a brief rundown. The Fashoda incident was the anticlimactic climax of imperialist tensions in Egypt and Sudan, during the European powers' crazed, quote-unquote, scramble for Africa, the French were pursuing this stratagem of depositing troops in Fashoda on the White Nile so that they could gain control of the Upper Nile River Basin by preventing the British from gaining access, essentially. It didn't end up working, as a force of British, Sudanese, and Egyptian soldiers 1,500 strong, led by Sir Herbert Kitchener, dwarfed Jean-Baptiste Marchand's army nearly ten to one. And so Marchand and the French soldiers that were holding Fashoda ultimately decided to withdraw, likely saving their own lives and forestalling the outbreak of pan-European war. Pynchon mentions Marchand and Kitchener by name, in Under the Rose. So it's interesting to note yet another instance where a diplomat raised a writer, another variant of the diplomat-spy-writer pipeline, 
Following the Schwab family's time colonizing in Egypt, they returned to France, first to Tours, and then eventually moving to Nantes in the 1870s, I believe. It was in Nantes that Papa Schwab became the director of the previously mentioned Republican Daily. At age 11, Petit Marcel Schwab discovered the gothic stories of Edgar Allan Poe, connecting Schwab to the content in another episode. First, he read Baudelaire's translations of Poe. Later, he would read them in the original English, and Poe's stories would leave a lasting impression. As a young student, Schwab studied at various lycées, at one point leaving Nantes for Paris to live with his maternal uncle Leon Cahun, who was the chief librarian of the magazine library, further demonstrating the literary network Marcel was enmeshed in. Around this time, Marcel Schwab befriended Leon Daudet, a French journalist and monarchist gross, and Paul Claudel, the younger brother of Camille Claudel and a poet, dramatist, and diplomat. Ding, ding, ding. In 1884, Marcel Schwab discovered Robert Louis Stevenson, and his life would never be the same. In fact, Schwab was such a Stevenson stan that he would chase him as far as Samoa. Stevenson was a Scottish author who wrote about occult and secret societal themes such as piracy, doppelgangers, Faustian bargains, and magic serums. He was also a documenter of the evils of colonization during his final years living among the Polynesian people of Samoa. Also, According to a Facebook post from Little Falls Lodge Number 154, Free and Accepted Masons, Robert Louis Stevenson was a Freemason. So make of that what you will. I also found a blog post quoting a private letter from Stevenson to one Charles Baxter, written during his Samoa years, that states that Stevenson, quote, breakfasted the other morn with my Freemason portrait of yourself in front of me, end quote. So, seems fairly likely. Anywho, getting back to our dude, Marcel Schwab. Schwab appears to have sought to emulate the neo-romantic Stevenson. Gifted with languages... He became multilingual and even studied philology and Sanskrit. With Ferdinand de Saussure at the École Pratique des Hautes Études in 1883-84, he then completed his military service in Vaughan, joining the artillery. End quote. Following the completion of his Bachelor of Arts in 1888, Schwab became a professional journalist, writing in the daily his family ran, and also L'Echo de Paris, which was published up until the Nazi occupation of France in 1944, I believe. During the years of his early work, 
Schwab differentiated himself by disputing Victor Hugo's linguistic conception of slang, arguing that, contrary to it being a spontaneous language, slang is actually an artificial code. From approximately 1890 to 1897, Schwab was on a tear. Those were the years that gifted us his short stories, novellas, and collections. Double Heart, The King and the Golden Mask, The Book of Monel, Imaginary Lives, Psyche's Lamp, and The Children's Crusade make up pretty much the entirety of his bibliography. Quoting from Wikipedia, quote, Along with Stuart Merrill, Adolf Rett, and Pierre-Louis, Marcel Schwab worked on Oscar Wilde's play Salome, which was written in French to avoid a British law forbidding the depiction of Bible characters on stage. Wilde struggled with his French, and the play was proofread and corrected by Marcel Schwab for its first performance in Paris in 1896. End quote. In fact, Wilde and Schwab were close enough, and their mutual fandom big enough, that the two dedicated work to each other. Oscar Wilde's poem, The Sphinx, is dedicated to Schwab, while Schwab dedicated the Blue Country to the Irish playwright. In the late 1890s, Schwab became increasingly infirm, which caused his creative output to suffer. He appears to have ceased writing fiction pretty much entirely. Schwab was very much the archetypal sickly writer, and not unlike Stevenson in this regard. In 1901, he began to travel in search of warmer climes, seemingly in a half-hearted attempt at reinvigorating himself. Schwab hired a young Chinese scholar named Ting Seying, who he met at the Paris Expo and who was evidently from San Luis, Senegal. And Ting was to be his traveling companion and quote-unquote domestic servant. Schwab traveled to Jersey, tired of it, and then back into the mainland and to Uriage in the French Alps. Tiring of the Alps, or maybe the thin alpine air wasn't having the desired effect on his health, but for whatever reason, Marcel and Ting departed again, this time to make their way to Polynesia. Marcel Schwab intended to go on pilgrimage to the tomb of Robert Louis Stevenson, to pay his respects to his neo-romantic and Masonic master. They shipped out from Marseille, a city that flickers, lights above a pitch-black sea in various Schwab short stories. The Salt Smugglers is one, and I think the city also features in The Children's Crusade. From the Mediterranean, they traveled to Port Said, Djibouti, Sri Lanka, Sydney, and finally reached their ultimate destination, Vailima where RLS had lived and farmed in the latter years of his life. 
writing some of his darkest and most socially realist material. Malhur Zuma his hopes of visiting the tomb of Stevenson were foiled. According to his Wikipedia entry, he grew ever more wan and famished on the island. And after a month, living among folks who had known the Scottish author, was forced to leave abruptly by his wasting away. From Schwab's letters, we learn that his traveling companion Ting was arrested on multiple occasions along the voyage due to regional racism. So that sounds really shitty. Following Schwab and Ting's peregrination, the two returned to France. Schwab would travel a bit more before his death, but his life was already drawing to a close. Still, only a youngish man in his thirties. In fact, Schwab would die in 1905 at the age of 38, surrounded by Ting, his brother, and his biographer. Now, there appears to be some disagreement around the nature of Schwab's ailments. His Wikipedia states that he came down with an incurable intestinal disorder in 1896 and suffered recurrent bouts of influenza and pneumonia. There were a couple surgical attempts at rectifying whatever blockage or issue he was dealing with in his intestine. He was also a patient of the reputable doctor Samuel Jean de Posy, who connects Marcel and this episode to Boston by virtue of the fact that he was once painted by John Singer Sargent. I haven't confirmed it, but that painting could very well be in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And he was also the lover of Sarah Bernhardt for a time, who, if I remember correctly, stayed in the Parker House back in its heyday. Okay, now strap in, because things are about to get spooked up. This is very interesting. So, according to the Wikipedia entry on Marcel Schwab, Marcel has long been dogged by rumors that he died from syphilis. The Wikipedia entry arranges this section under the subheading quote-unquote misinformation and claims that the syphilitic rumors are baseless. But check out the source. Evidently, the story originated in this quote from the Irish Ulster Unionist MP H. Montgomery Hyde's book, The Love That Dared Not Speak Its Name, in which Hyde wrote that Schwab died from the quote, effects of a syphilitic tumor in the rectum, which he acquired as a result of anal intercourse with an infected youth, end quote. Now, I would probably buy the Schwab wiki's claim that these rumors were nothing except for the following information about this shitty Harford Montgomery Hyde British bootlicker. Also, note the synchronicity between this guy's name and the titular character of Robert Louis Stevenson's classic, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 
which is made doubly interesting when you think about how the novel is all about an elite doctor who is grappling with evil urges within himself. We're quoting from the H. Montgomery Hyde Wikipedia entry here. Quote, Secret Intelligence Agent He joined the British Army Intelligence Corps in 1939, serving as an assistant censor in Gibraltar in 1940. He was then commissioned in the Intelligence Corps, MI6, and engaged in counter-espionage work in the United States under Sir William Stevenson, the Director of British Security Coordination in the Western Hemisphere. Hyde was also military liaison and security officer Bermuda from 1940 to 1941, and assistant passport control officer in New York from 1941 to 1942. He was with British Army Staff USA from 1942 to 1944, attached to the Supreme HQ Allied Expeditionary Force in 1944, and then seconded to the Allied Control Commission for Austria until 1945 as a legal officer. End quote. So, this Irish Unionist, the source of the claim that Marcel Schwab was not only a gay man but seemingly a pederast, was an MI6 officer who worked under Sir William Stevenson and was all over the place during World War II. Wow. And later, became the Unionist MP for Belfast North in the House of Commons. Not only that, but this guy would be deselected by his party in 1959 after he sought out a debate over the Wolfenden Report, the report published by this committee that had been assembled to contend with the rising incarceration and trials of homosexual acts, which had been spurred by the conviction of numerous elite men for homosexual offenses including Lord Montague, Michael Pitt Rivers, John Gielgud, and Peter Wildblood. The Wolfenden Report determined that homosexuality should be decriminalized, and evidently this former spy and MP, H. Montgomery Hyde, was such a big proponent of it that he got booted from his Northern Irish Imperialist and Conservative Party, when you couple his intelligence and political career in with his pro-LGBTQ advocacy, and then consider his remarks about Marcel Schwab, his claim that Schwab died of syphilis, caught from a quote-unquote infected youth, begins to sound not only more believable, but also develops a yucky, Nambla-esque tinge to it. Very interesting. So Schwab, descended from French diplomats himself, 
was memorialized and written about by one of the biggest champions of the decriminalization of homosexuality in the UK during the mid-20th century, who himself happened to be a spy. H. Montgomery Hyde only wrote about Marcel Schwab long after Schwab had passed. But, would you believe it, there's actually another spy with some questionable sexual tendencies who was directly connected to Marcel. But before we get to that... Let's look at the network of literary and art connections that Schwab curated for himself and situated himself in the center of, like Arachne sitting on a web. Quoting again from Wikipedia, and listen, I'm not going to look up how to correctly pronounce every single one of these names. The jig is up. I can't do it. It takes too much time, so you're going to see that I'm uh, horrendous when it comes to French pronunciations, and I'm okay with that. Quote, Throughout his life, Schwab associated with or befriended a great number of notables from the worlds of art and literature. They include Léon Daudet, Alphonse Daudet, Paul Claudel, Anatole France, Edmond de Goncourt, Jean Lorraine, um, Auguste Briel, Paul Arène, uh, Jules Renard, Paul Marguerite, Rachild, Octave Mirbeau, if that's how you pronounce it, Guillaume Apollinaire, Henri Barbousse, Georges Courtelaine, 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 something like that, Paul Valéry, Colette, Oscar Wilde, Pierre Louis, George Meredith, Maurice Materlink, Alfred Jerry, Aristide Brouin, Marcel Proust, Edouard Manet, Auguste Rodin, Camille Claudel and Jehan Rictus. In 1903, Schwab reflected on the passing of several of his closest friends, all cultural celebrities at the time. He wrote to Edmund Goss, quote, I have been sadly tried in my friends since a few years. Stevenson and Verlaine. Malarm and now Henley and Whistler are gone. End quote. And another bigger end quote, if you remember that system from other episodes. That's the end of the wiki quote. Speaking of symbolism, and a callback to our favorite, New Agey, Central Intelligence Agency asset, Peter Lavenda. Check it out. Schwab and Maurice Moderlink were buddies. If you've read Peter Lavenda's Sinister Forces, you might recall Moderlink as the Nobel Prize-winning Belgian author of the symbolist play The Blue Bird, which Lavenda posits originated the phrase, 
quote, the bluebird of happiness, end quote, that served as the inspiration for CIA security chief Sheffield Edwards to give the mind control project that preceded MKUltra and Artichoke the name Project Bluebird. Maurice Moderlink wasn't just a part of Marcel Schwab's literary cohort. It appears they actually knew each other. Another interrelatedness between this foray into French literary society and our previous Rosicrucian investigations. Moderlink was friends with none other than Sar Peladon, quote, a noted Rosicrucian of the day, end quote. From what I can tell, it seems likely that Marcel Schwab was, if not directly, tangentially connected to this fond de siècle, proto-surrealist-slash-dadaist network that revolved around Sar Peladon, legally known as Josephin Peladon. Sar was his Rosicrucian pseudonym and the Akkadian word for king. Sar was the founder of the Salon de la Rose Croix, a Rosicrucian-inspired avant-garde salon that catered to many of the symbolist poets, painters, and writers of the day. Salon de la Rose Croix sprouted out of Sar Peladon's mystic order of the same name, and via Sar we can link Materlink to Papus and the Martinists as well. The Martinists being another quasi-Rosicrucian and Christian mystical society that is especially concerned with man's fallen state. Also, I have to close the circle here and point something out. Although we haven't even covered AMORC or AMORC or AMORC and Harvey Spencer Lewis yet, in fact, I've only really referred to them in passing, Harvey Spencer Lewis, the ad man founder and first imperator of the ancient mystical order Rose Crucis, was on a trip in France when he received his orders from the Rosicrucian Ascended Masters to start his society in the United States. And although we have and will continue to give H.S. Lewis plenty of flack for his cult-creating bullshittery, it's not impossible that he might have connected with remnants of this earlier society and Salon de la Rose Croix. This seems even more likely when we consider that Lewis would ultimately found and open a college Rose Croix University, at the Grand Lodge's headquarters in Rosicrucian Park, San Jose, California. Sounds like the Salon was a direct antecedent. On est bien peu de choses, et mon ami la rose me l'a dit ce matin. Je suis née, baptisée de rosée Je me suis épanouie, heureuse et amoureuse Au rayon du soleil, me suis fermée la nuit Me suis réveillée vieille Pour 
Pourtant j'étais très belle Oui j'étais la plus belle Des fleurs de ton jardin On met bien peu de choses Et mon ami la rose Me l'a dit ce matin Vois le Dieu qui m'a faite Me fait courber la tête Et je sens que je tombe Et je sens que je tombe Mon cœur est presque nu J'ai le pied dans la tombe Déjà je ne suis plus Tu m'admirais hier Et je serai poussière Pour toujours demain On est bien peu de choses Et mon ami la rose Est morte ce matin la lune cette nuit a veillé mon ami Moi en rêve j'ai vu éblouissante et nue Son âme qui dansait bien au-delà des nues Et qui me souriait Crois celui qui peut croire Moi j'ai besoin d'espoir Sinon je ne suis rien Ou bien si peu de choses c'est mon ami la rose qui l'a dit hier matin.